Allison Haynes, well, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Julie. It's great having you. Yeah, it's really, really nice to, to talk to you. Uh, you're on your Sunday time, I think, and I'm I'm I, Monday. <laughs> I sure am. Yeah, I'm out in Canada. You're in Australia. So this is actually the first call that I do from uh, from that amount of, of distance, essentially. Uh, so yeah, you're the first, I guess, technically Australian. Oh, that that's fantastic. Had. Yes, yeah. well, I, I, I'm, I'm a dual citizen, <laughs> to complicate matters. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm English and, and uh, I am Australian as well. Okay, and so we met through Twitter because you have, um, well, you're, you're a scientist and uh, you have an interest in urban moss, which I find fascinating because I actually also have a science account on Twitter and I research tardigrades which live in moss. Yes, well, it's my ambition to see a tardigrade. I haven't seen one yet. I, I'm, I'm really hoping to. But yeah, I'm doing, um, I'm doing a PhD in the ecology and physiology of moss in the urban environment, sort of looking at sort of how it can survive, what, what, um, what different habitats it um, you know it can persist in, and and sort of what what makes life hard or easier for for moss. Before we get started talking about moss itself, can you tell me why you got interested in this? <clears throat> so I suppose I um, I went back to university. Um, after a career in journalism and I did a science degree and I did that part-time while I worked on various things. I shifted my, my career from publishing centered to, to, to more towards science. And, um, I just, I really, I really enjoyed it. It went really well. Then I did honors, which is like a mini research project. And then after then that went really well too. So then I was looking for a, um, a project to do for my PhD and this was one of them. And I, I wanted to do something new and the supervisor, was seemed really good. I had a list of criteria actually, and that so that sort of led me led me to Moss. And now, um, I've yeah, it's it's been something that I'm learning about and and I've, I've really enjoyed. I have to ask you just because I'm curious, what was on your list of criteria? Well, so I wanted the supervisor was really important because I'd heard that that sort of you know can make or break a PhD experience. I wanted someone who had um, a good lab group. So I didn't want to be just stuck by myself. I wanted someone who who supported that and and encouraged people to to talk and um, you know be supportive of each other. I wanted some um, biodiversity, which by that I mean I, I wanted to sort of have some aspect of well what's what's here, um, and um, so that included some identification, and I wanted to learn a new skill. So that definitely included moss. Um, yeah, that's that's they were the, they were some of the main. I wanted the opportunities to collaborate. Um, yeah, so it was it was that kind of thing, and it could have sort of could have been anything, but I'm I was really really happy to be doing moss, and it has been quite a journey of discovery. Yeah, it's interesting because moss is something that most people don't even really think about. They walk all over it. Um, it grows underneath our park benches in in local parks. Uh, we see it almost every day, or maybe we don't because we're so busy focused walking to work or something. But it is one of those um, one of those things that grows all around us that people aren't really aware about. I know, and I think that is what I really liked about it is that once you do start noticing you. You start noticing it everywhere, so it sort of changes your view of the world a little bit, and that's something I I really like. So now, whenever I go anywhere new, like to a different city or even a city I've been to before, I'm I'm on the lookout for it. So I've got photographs of 
of moss in the Jardin du Luxembourg in Paris and um, on the castle in England near where I grew up. You know, when I went there a few years ago, I was I was looking out for the moss. So it's I think that's really nice the way that it sort of makes you look at things with a, like a fresh eye. Yeah, it's really beautiful too. That's the thing is that once you really start um, looking at moss, you start to realize how beautiful it is. Mm. Do you have like a specific type of moss that's your favorite? Um, well, at the moment, I'm looking at moss in pavement cracks, which gets a lot of um, strange looks when I'm out on the street. Um but one of the one of the really lovely ones in there, I don't know its name yet, though I have a suspicion what it is. Um, it's it's something which looks quite quite dark and almost just like a piece of dirt in the in the in the crack. When you when you take a, a piece and you look at under the lens, you see that it's got these little tiny white hairs on them called hair points. And then if you moisten it, then it starts to brighten up and be quite sort of sprightly. And I find that really beautiful. It's a so at the moment, it's just got the name white hair point, <laughs> but um, soon I'll be identifying it and know what species it is. Are there, is there a lot of moss in Australia? Because when I think of Australia, I think of a very kind of very hot, dry place. Are there a lot of species of moss in, in Australia or maybe more specifically where you're at in Australia? Yes. Yeah, so there, there are. I mean, I'm not sure exactly how many there are. Um, I'm, I'm expecting to find about perhaps 30 in the city region where I am. So that will come under my study. But within Australia, there's many hundreds. And I think one of the things that people don't understand about moss is that there are uh, thousands of species worldwide and they've, and they've got sort of different um, traits or like powers, if you like. Um, so some of them are really good at surviving in in dry areas. So there are desert mosses, for instance, that are actually really important part of the desert. They're being, um, they're being studied quite a bit in China. They're trying to sort of reintroduce moss as part of something called a biocrust, which can help retain the, um, it's like stop the soil sort of um, flying off and, and helping to pollute the slitties. So it's, although you do associate, you tend to associate moss with moist areas, maybe shady, moist, um, forests in fact they can survive in a lot of different places yeah it's interesting because you know we briefly mentioned tardigrades and and it's actually not that hard to find them I, I can give you some tips on how to find them but um, you know one of the things is that tardigrades in deserts is something that hasn't I don't think has been researched all that much okay so I'm really curious you know to see if maybe we could find some in, in the desert area so I I would strongly hopefully encourage you to maybe collect some of that desert moss and start looking maybe yeah that would be really interesting I'm a bit of a way from the desert though so I live on the east coast of Australia like a lot of different a lot of people that's where most of the of the population of Australia lives but I have I have worked in the desert for on other things so that would be really cool so yeah, you're going to have to give me some tips, Julie. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, you know what I tell what's interesting is that uh, you know, you're looking in in sidewalk cracks, which is actually one of the best spots to find them. You know, like um I I just I I I get the same looks because I look uh for tardigrades on my balcony, which is where I found, you know, three or four different species of tardigrades in the hundreds. I mean, every oh, time wow. it rains, I go out on my balcony and I collect a little bit of water. And I put that in a Petri dish and I put that under the microscope. So I think the most common way to find tardigrades in, in moss is just to soak the moss in water for like an hour. 
Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, and then you take that water and you put it under the microscope. Mm. And what's the what's the best um, like um, sort of magnification to look at? Look at them. Uh, any any essentially four x four x you would okay. see them really okay. So oh yeah oh yeah even one x you'll see like the bigger species. Oh wow. So. Yeah, yeah. I really hope that you find some. Yeah. Or, <laughs> I, I feel it. I feel positive. I feel optimistic. Yeah, I figured. I figured I'd bring it up because you do work with moss, so that's such a, a popular way of finding tardigrades. So mm. I, I find that really cool. Uh, speaking of creatures, just I know that's not exactly your field mm. of study, but uh, what what other kind of creatures do you tend to find when you're out looking for moss? Um. So when. I'm looking, I just see, um, what do I see? I see um, millipedes and things like that sort of in the, in the same area. But it, I, once, um, I once took this really flat piece of moss from a quite a sort of a, um, a, well, a fairly polluted road and it was really stunted. And I, but I looked under the microscope and I was absolutely thrilled to see this bright red mite sort of marching around. <laughs> and I, I really liked the idea that, that there's life sort of everywhere. It just depends how you look. Yeah, and that's that's one of my reasons for asking is because you're studying, you know, moss in urban environments, the 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 growth of moss must must attract these creatures, which means it makes for a thriving ecosystem. Yeah, I think that is a possibility, but um, I think as well in uh, in urban environments, sometimes the moss is is struggling. It depends exactly where it is, but it's it's sort of a bit hanging in there. One of my other studies, I. Um, I collaborated with a Polish researcher who was visiting and his specialty was looking at particulate matter, like little tiny particles on leaves as a, as a way of sort of phytoremediation, sort of improving the city air uh, with plants. And we were, we looked at the same spots, but I, I would look at moss and he would look at leaves. And he, he had this method for taking off the particulate matter. But I also took some stress measurements of the of moss in um, like on a gradient and least urban to more more urban. And quite consistently, the ones in the more urban areas were, were more stressed. So it is it, it can be tougher for for moss. OK. Hmm. Yeah, I do wonder because I find, you know, I in Ottawa at least it's it's um it's a very green city. So you tend to find moss, like I said, under park benches, you find them crawling along walls and and stuff like that. What other areas would you commonly find moss in a city? Um yeah, brick walls um under leaky, leaky pipes is is a common one. Um as you've mentioned um uh, well, we've talked about sidewalks, but uh, that's sort of smallish in little, little tiny urban green areas, like where there's a bit of grass. That's that's where there's going to be most biodiversity. So I've just begun to look at that kind of area. And sometimes in one little park, you might get sort of a nine species. So I think as far as diversity, that's quite interesting. I'm trying to think of some of the other places I've seen moss. Um, oh, just like by a drain pipe. I've got a nice picture I took in Wellington in New Zealand of a of a drain and water gushing down it and there's some moss that's that's just taken taken residence there and is quite happy. Obviously quite that one must be quite um tolerant of being a bit waterlogged. Yeah, so there's different there's has different sort of characteristics will sort of dictate where they can survive. And as some mosses are struggling, 
can you get invasive moss in the city? And I'll explain why I'm asking is because I'm originally from Northern Ontario and I grew up with a big forest in the backyard. One of the things we've noticed in recent years is that the moss is pretty much taking over the forest floor and it's like pretty much killing everything. I'm wondering, are there urban versions of like an invasive moss? So I... I don't know of any invasive ones in my own city, but I have heard that that, that can happen. And I think some, something sometimes that changes is that you might get a um, you might get a moss coming in that's got quite a tolerance for, say, a particular metal, something like that. And if it's if it's got that tolerance at a greater level than something else, then it might start to take over. Usually, it doesn't compete well with um with vascular plants things like grass because it's moss is usually very slow growing but i think it i think definitely there are there are instances of invasive invasive mosses okay and being so you're researching urban moss what do you do with this research afterwards what is it uh, i mean do you apply it to learn something about perhaps climate change or urbanization what for you is like the ultimate goal of this research so all of those things actually it it touches on on sustainable cities like there are applications things like um on green roofs perhaps moss can help other plants survive better because moss can um retain water it can um it can slow water, so it can help with stormwater management. It perhaps um, can hold particulate matter. There's a whole range of things. But I guess um, for me, the, the project was first of all um, presented to me in terms of like um, moss on green roofs. But when I started looking at moss in urban areas, there, there wasn't much information on it. So I decided to sort of pedal back a bit and, and try to get some basics about which mosses and why moss can survive in the urban area with a view to, yeah, my final chapter of my PhD will be all about all the different possible applications. Um, so I'm just sort of gathering together some of that information now, but it's, um, it's quite early days, but I think it has got a role a little bit like you were talking about the forest floor. I think um, cities, we've thought of trees and we've thought of shrubs and things like that, but we, we're not thinking of all those, all the different, aspects of a, a complex ecosystem and so I, I like to think that moss has got a, a role in those in small areas and, and maybe adding to the complexity of urban greening. Yeah I I have to admit I would love a full lawn of moss because there's nothing like walking barefoot on moss. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever done it? Uh, no I haven't um, so I only see like in the urban environment I just see very small little little pieces you know it, it is it's it doesn't get the chance to grow into big beds usually um trying to think and then when I've seen it out say in the in the bush it's yeah it, it's probably been a bit cold or it's a bit so I haven't I haven't taken my boots off but in um I think you have to go to Japan because they have really amazing moss sort of carpets there and I think in cities as well like they have moss temples I'd love to go there and see see the different things they do with moss in Japan yeah, that could be a good idea for a postdoc, maybe. Mm, exactly. Uh, part, once we can travel again, we're not allowed out of Australia at the moment. Mm. <laughs> right, right, of course. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I definitely was not thinking now. Mm. <laughs> I was thinking yeah. of a world again when we can travel. Yes, but yeah, well, we'll I mean, 
if Japan can do it, I wonder if it is possible to build, you know, sustainable roofs or or lawns or whatever out of moss. I mean, is that the only international example that you can think of? Or so moss is being used in other areas on on roofs, but not necessarily in a sort of a, an aesthetic way because it does depend on on the on the sort of the um, well, the, like the local climate and that kind of thing. So, for instance, in the in Portugal, there's a group of people that have been um, they they've been looking at how moss can help other plants survive on a green roof, and and they found that it does help, and it and it and it um, it means that they use less water, but it's not necessarily going to look that attractive all all year round. So, like um, in I think in Japan, it, it possibly some of those places are, are more moist so they 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 look quite lush but um yeah moss, moss can spend some time looking a bit dry and possibly not that attractive but it's still doing a good job so i think we have to sort of not expect too much of it i'm sort of wary of overselling it because people might be a bit disappointed <laughs> Mm, of course. Yeah. One of the, the, the people that I spoke with recently is an expert in biodesign. Mm. So I think this kind of touches on that topic, right? Because we're using nature to inspire perhaps new designs for the future. Yeah, definitely. And I've been talking to um, a number of designers, actually. And we're, we're trying to, because one of my experiments, I, I created some tiles with different textures and try to see if that affected moss colonization and um some people are quite interested in that so they're they're trying to t they're interested in sort of taking that a step further and and looking at some of the ways that they can create different surfaces for buildings that maybe can um, encourage colonization and, and that's so that's that's happened a little bit in europe but not i haven't seen it in australia um yeah but i'm definitely interested in that i think that's really fascinating Tiles and textures, now you've got my attention. Uh, I'm really curious about that because I want to know what you tried, what, what did you find out? Tell me more. Well, the, the first thing which was quite funny was that I ended up having to learn a bit about concrete and I'm, I actually cast these concrete tiles myself because I wanted to see, like I'd noticed that the um, obviously pavement cracks, it's, there's a bit of a depth there. And if they're too shallow, there's there's no, like there's nothing for sort of moss to, to get hold of. So I was aware that that um, texture and what we call microtopography really makes a difference but I could and I wanted to do an experiment on a on an urban gradient with that but I couldn't find any tiles that had enough texture so I needed a depth of getting on for a centimeter so I actually made some models myself out of cardboard and then I made some silicon molds it was very um took took ages and then I cast concrete and I made um I think about 250 small tiles which I then put on these panels and yeah people were fascinated with them and what I found was that they yeah the sort of like a niche design like where, where there was sort of a depth that as opposed to a relief where things stood up that really made a difference and I did I did some experiments in people's gardens and then I did another one where I just did it in one place and I added water each week and had some in shade and the shade actually made a huge difference. Huh. Did you publish that anywhere or do you have it like on a website somewhere? So I've, I've done some presentations where I've shown pictures of those, but I haven't published it yet. I've just, uh, I've got the results in, but I, um, I've just got one last survey to do. So I'm trying to do that. And then I'm going to be starting to, to, to write up.
Okay. Yeah, it's curious because now you've just introduced a new word in my vocabulary, which yep. is uh, microtopography, which yes. I've never heard of before. Ah, there you are. Microtopography affects microclimate. So down at that really small, small scale, um, it's, um, you know, a little bit extra shade can mean that the temperature drops. Um, it can mean that uh, water is retained for that little bit longer, which can make a big difference to a slow growing plant like moss. Yeah, so it's quite fascinating. Yeah, it's interesting because one of the things I'm trying to do, so my partner and I are going to probably move to Prince Edward Island or somewhere in the East Coast next year. And uh, one of the things I really want to do is find a way to bring my tardigrades with me, the ones that are living on my balcony, right? Ah. And it's a cement, it's cement balcony, but there's hmm. cracks. Yeah. So I think uh, you've just inspired me to perhaps <laughs> um, try to build some blocks and see if I can, you know keep them yeah, alive yeah definitely you can you I think you could do that so I used um yeah so I made basically made made a, a pattern that I that uh that was what I wanted and then I used these um silicon it's sort of that which is like a right so you get a, like a rubbery mold and then um somebody at um at uni may who made his own concrete planters he said oh I've got a I've got a book with concrete recipes and so I just um, used a very simple concrete recipe there. You need, I had to learn about, um, I can't even remember what they're called now, but you you have sand and and concrete. Like it's not just the concrete. If it's just concrete, it's too, um, or cement, it's, it's too weak. But you can, I can send you my concrete recipe if you like. Oh, I would love that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I'll share it. I'll share it on Twitter. That would be good. Yes, it would be actually. Um, so, one of the things that came up recently is I saw an article in the CBC. It's a man actually on Prince Edward Island, um, a retired uh, scientist. And he found, he's, he tracked all the species of microfungi on uh, PEI. And his name is Adrian Carter, by the way. Um, the reason I'm, I bring him up is because I didn't know that there was such a thing as microfungi or fungi or fungi. I know there's an international way of pronouncing that word. Uh so I guess what I, what I wanted to know is, is there such a thing as a micro moss? Um, well, not really. So moss you can see with the naked eye. I suppose that's a definition. Um, yeah, so I, I say fungi. Um, but that's, I suppose, the thing with fungi is that it's a whole kingdom. And if you think of mold, I mean, mold is, is fungi. So it's, um, it's a really broad group, whereas um, moss... Like there's small moss, but not so much. I would not that I would call micro. Like okay. you do, yeah, you'll see a lot more under, it's worth looking at them under under a microscope. And when you identify them, you have to, you have to actually look at the cells and things like that. So you do need a, a, a microscope. And they're only, what the, the thing about moss is they're only, the leaves are only one cell thick. So sort of, in, I think for me, they, they sort of um, bridge that, that, gap between micro and macro that you know they're just visible they're visible with the naked eye but you do need to sort of get a microscope out as well and they're so beautiful under a microscope there's nothing I enjoy more than looking at moss under the microscope so have you looked at it rehydrating because that's really amazing yeah under what so yeah I because because I I frequently you know look for tardigrades in moss mm. uh, you know some little pieces of moss end up in the water that I'm looking you know under the the microscope and it's just so beautiful. The green, first of all, the color is gorgeous. 
but also the shapes and oh, I, I love yeah. it. Yeah, there's all different, I mean, and they're quite different shapes. The, the leaves can be pointy or round, or they can have a hair point. Or so once you start looking, you'll. I mean, you, you're probably seeing a few different species. Do you reckon? I I guess, but again, I don't know a whole lot about moss. Right, mm. moss species. I don't know. So you look if you see the the shape of the leaves, um, like if you see some, you might see with a a pointy leaf, and others might be rounded. So like I, th- I think once you take note of the leaf shape you'll if you see different leaf shapes you're basically seeing different species which i guess is is a great question to ask you then is what can somebody who's a beginner um what's the best way to start learning about moss and identifying species so i think the first thing would be to uh, get yourself a hand lens they're really cheap they're, and um, you just need maybe 10 times or I think you can get 20 times ones, but just get a hand lens and um, start to look at it. And then you'll um, you'll notice, you'll start noticing the different, different different kinds. You can call them field names to begin with. So, you know, don't get too worried about if you can't find the exact species. And then you'd have to, I'd say, look up uh, probably some maybe an online resource of your local area that that might be the best but to be honest I mean I'm I'm still at the beginning of my ID journey and if you if you want to identify absolutely to genus that that can be quite hard but you've got to start somewhere that's the thing right I mean I, I have been using a microscope for only a year you know so I mean it's doable you can totally go and explore it's it's definitely possible yeah, uh, and I think don't get caught do don't get too caught up in in thinking. Well, I've got to have the right yeah. absolute right name. Exactly, exactly. Are there common names for moss? Like uh, I don't know, like in the micros- microscopic world, uh, you'll call a copepod a cyclops. Uh, okay. Are there common names for moss, or do you, is it all Latin? Oh no, there's there's um, there are uh, common names. So one one um, species that you'll probably see in your city is Briam argentium. It's actually a, a moss which is found on every continent, I think, even Antarctica. And um, that's called, it has several names, but one of them is the silver moss. And it's recognizable because it is quite silvery. So if you see a moss that's a bit, a bit silvery, and if you look in the hand lens and it's all, almost got little chubby leaves, almost like little, little sort of round cabbages, then that's, um, that's silver moss. And then you'll get some things. I'm trying to. There's another one called fire. Tends to be called fire moss because it comes up after fire quite a bit. And that one is Ceratodon purpureus. Um, yeah. So yeah. So there there are common names as well. It's curious. I have to ask now uh, because you you mentioned silver moss, which is interesting because I th- I guess I thought maybe that was always lichen because it was silver. So there is there is a moss called silver moss, and the reason it's silver is because the the tip of its leaf doesn't have any chloroplasts in it, and it's uh, oh. this is a um, it's a it's a moss that's also found in the desert. It has high desiccation tolerance, so it's it's very able to sort of um, survive heat and bright light, and that that tip of its leaf actually protects the the chloroplasts lower down in the leaf. So that's that's sort of its it's sort of strategy for surviving bright light. Okay, so what would what would be the difference between moss and lichen? So if you look, if you get your hand lens or whatever, so a moss is going to have leaves, whereas a lichen can be 
is usually a bit more more like a crust. It's a bit more crusty and it doesn't actually have separate leaves. But something that you might get um, muddled up with as well is something called a liverwort. Uh, and that's there are some called there are some leafy liverworts which are a little bit like moss, and there are particular definitions like why it would be one and not the other. But generally, look, moss is is leafy, and you'll sometimes see when it's um, at the right time of year, you'll see these little stalks with little um, capsules on the top, and that's called the sporophyte. And yeah, you don't get that with with a lichen. That's what I was actually going to ask you next, because I think I told you this is that uh, in this spring, I went out and I collected moss and I, I got these beautiful little bottles um, and I, I created little moss gardens and they're just growing so well in, in those bottles. And, and still to this day, it's beautiful. It's green. And when I first collected them, it had those little stalks. What do those stalks do? So that's the, the sexual reproductive part of the moss. And they're actually individual organisms. They, they're growing out of the, the so the, the leafy green bit is called the gametophyte. And that's sort of like, acts like the parent. And those sporophytes grow out of the, the leafy green bit and, and, and um, are totally dependent on, this, on their parent for their food. They, that little bobble at the top, that, that is where spores grow. And when it's actually, it's quite funny because there's like a little little bit of tissue called a calyptra. And that's almost like a little beanie that's on that capsule. And that's a piece of parent tissue. And when when the parent says it's ready, then it allows the, that capsule at the top to open and the, the spores will come out. And that's what how a, a new moss can grow from those spores. My mind is blown because I, I legitimately had no idea that, that moss produce uh, spores. Well, there you are. Yes, yeah, so they're really tiny and they're, they're windblown. So that's why some species are, have quite wide range. So it's probably that like Briar margentium and, and Ceratodon purpureus. They're probably, probably been blown around over thousands and thousands of years. And because they have really sort of wide um, survival capabilities, they've been able to, to, to colonize lots of different places around the world. Wow. I'm going to spend a lot more time researching moss after this talk, that's for sure. I have yeah. to ask you this uh -huh. question, yep. Alison, because my partner and I were talking about this interview this morning and I was joking with her. I was like, you know, I'm surprised, you know, Australia, you know, to me is all snakes and spiders and everything's trying to kill you. Um, and she, and then she, she, she said to me just jokingly, she's like, I wonder if there's toxic moss. And I was mm. like, hmm, I will ask my guests. So <laughs> Alison, is there such a thing as a toxic moss? Well, um, oh, well, I've never been attacked by a moss. I can say that. <laughs> um, I don't know. Cause I mean, I, I, we don't try to eat it, do we? So I haven't heard of people trying to eat it. I haven't heard of a toxic moss, but it's not impossible. I suppose one way that it might end up being toxic is that some mosses can retain um, heavy metals. They can sort of absorb them into their tissues and um, and and survive, and you know, not not be killed. And in that way, that that moss maybe then becomes a bit of a package of something that you wouldn't want to to sort of um, well, you definitely wouldn't want to eat it. But um, yeah, look, I, I, I can't say I have, but it sometimes doesn't assist, like you notice that 
that in some areas it's it's um it's not allowing the plants other plants to grow and that that can happen so yeah okay a new a new question (laughs) yeah yeah i was just curious because you know other plants you have plants that like you said you know if an animal or human eats them they die or it it causes um, a terrible itch or something and so i was always curious you know too Mm. about about that whether or not because we've always handled moss you know wherever i go i'll touch moss but it never crossed my mind to wonder about that no, and I, and I I actually haven't heard any. I think I, maybe it would be the type of thing that would would come up in um, like a sort of indigenous law as well. That yeah. you know, if there was something toxic. Whereas I have heard of them being used for for like as sponges, things like sphagnum moss. But yeah, I haven't I haven't heard of that being a problem. Okay, and speaking of. Australia, the land of <laughs> um, spiders and snakes. <laughs> um, so you're originally from England, and now you live in Australia. What's the, been the cultural shift like? Um, well, I've been here, I think, about 30 years now. <laughs> so, oh, okay. yeah, I've got, got used to a few things. But um, you do have to be careful of, of spiders. There are uh, two particular ones in my area. One's a, a, a funnel web spider, Sydney funnel web, and another is called a redback. I don't see the redbacks very much. Basically, if you, as long as you don't go poking around, you're, you know, you, you, you're not going to be likely to see them. And the same with snakes. Like uh, there are some poisonous snakes in my region, but generally in, in, if you know if you're walking in the bush they'll they'll hear you and they'll run away like they don't want to see you any more than you want to see them but I was once with with some um, international visitors and we'd walked quite a way to, to walk onto this very special beach and um, we saw a brown snake on the path and the person who was leading the group decided that we wouldn't risk going past it because it it can be really, really serious. So you do have to be careful and you, you like if you part of your first aid kit is a bandage, for snake bite um and but yeah you're asking me about cultural shift i think yeah actually the cockroaches are probably the worst thing <laughs> get giant, <laughs> giant cockroaches i wasn't sort of used to that but you get used to anything don't you yeah i i mean it's um it's one thing to deal with the environment but yeah i mean culturally speaking is is it very different living in australia than living in england um let's see so I suppose there's a, there's a sort of a commonality which makes it not as not as big a shift as say if I went to I don't know some village in Africa or something like that. But um, I'm trying to think, I've been used to to living in different places, and so I'm sort of quite adaptable. But I mean, there are there are differences. Obviously, there's I guess there's more of a an outdoor culture here. I think it's. Um, yeah, like I'm saying, you can you can tell I'm struggling to sort of to to, to mm. sort of think of different things which are culturally different. I mean, they are ideas, but not not sort of unrecognisably. I mean, but I would imagine it'd be the same for you know if you if someone from Canada came to Australia, it's there's a lot of recognisable aspects of of cultural life. You know, there's the music, there's the museums, plays, films, all of those are there's a, a quite a similarity. Right. And and I guess the food, how's the food? Food is pre- is pretty good actually, and I think that was something that was that did surprise me when I first came, just how good the food was. There's quite a um 
quite a lot of Italian migration in the, I'm not sure it would be, say, 50s, 60s. And I think that's that sort of meant that the coffee in in Australia when I first came was a hell of a lot better than England. And England didn't have a really good reputation of, you know, very good sort of cafe food and stuff. But that's picked up. It's sort of everything changes. But we get, like, we, the food is, is, is pretty amazing. We get a lot of variety, a lot of... Um, Thai food, Vietnamese, um, Japanese, and the the produce is pretty good quality actually. So yeah, you can you can you can eat eat very well. You can, I think you can have a good life here relatively cheaply. Okay, when you were in England, you were a journalist, right? Yeah. So I um, actually, so I originally did law, English and French law. And then uh, I got my first journalist job. I wanted to go into journalism. I didn't want to go into law. Had my first journalism job in England, and then soon after that is when I I moved to Australia. So I had work here in Australia as a journalist as well. What kind of journalism was it? Writing or uh, video production or what? Yeah, it was writing. So it was um, the first. My first job was in trade journalism. It was uh, a a magazine called Retail Week. So I, it was sort of like a business-to-business kind of magazine with a very, uh, really good editor, actually, who went on to be uh, editing the Sunday Times magazine. So she had very good standards. So it was a really good, it was a really good start. So I started off doing news reporting and then I did feature writing. And then when I moved to Australia, I did a bit of that for a while. And then I moved on to, um, I worked for Choice Magazine, which is a bit like, I don't know what the equivalent in Canada is, but in America, it's Consumer Reports. So it's that sort of consumer type um, type of thing. And then I worked for Reader's Digest Magazine as a feature writer. So I was writing and, and editing. Okay, yeah. It's uh, something I can actually totally relate to. I used to be a freelance writer for the film industry. So animation magazines, film industry magazines, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, you know, for a while it is. I don't know what it's like now, though. Yeah, look, it was was a lot of fun and I had some really good trips. Um, I went to Istanbul with some Austrian shop fitters and we went yeah they, they took us around they even gave us spending money which was like really bizarre <laughs> um yeah so i had some and, and with readers digest had some really good um good stories as well including one where we looked uh, in australia looked for um extinct marsupials in this sort of caving system but yeah going back to the to the, the trade journal yes it's good you make you make you make your contacts you get your rounds um yeah, journalism's changed a lot now. My husband's was a travel writer, and that's almost like dried up. Um, yeah, so it's a very different world. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's all become content writing now. I think. Yeah, and lots of people will do a lot of writing for for nothing. They they just like to yeah. see their name there. So it's hard. It's harder to be a, a freelance journalist now. I think. Is that one of the reasons why you switched um, professions? I suppose. Um, so what happened to me was. Um, I, when I had children, I was working for Reader's Digest magazine and I, my first son, I managed to stay part-time for quite a while and then they were pushing me to go back full-time. So I, I did, and I didn't, I didn't like that, what, what, what that did to sort of like my childcare arrangements and, and stuff. And I felt really unhappy about that. So I decided I would go freelance and then I sort of, um, I moved more towards uh, book editing and 
that was it was it was it was going okay and I and I did that for quite a while um and then we moved out of um we moved out of Sydney to where I am now which is a much more natural place and just yeah just things started to shift I'd, I for a few years I was writing books but it was like hard to get a, a project up and going like you'd write you'd have a sort of a thing which you do for a while and then it would take another six months to get another contract um and at the same time I started seeing more I was being out in the natural world more and I was I was camping in the like without tents and that kind of stuff and I just started thinking about oh maybe I maybe I should have done a biology degree after all all those years ago so yeah it was it was just a combination of things do you uh are you familiar with the the new move towards science communication now so um when you say new move what what are you thinking of uh in the sense that it's more popular it's it's becoming more of a more of a new move academically. So now universities are, are offering master's degrees in science communication. Uh, content writing for science is big. Uh, there are new, new and, and improved science magazines because science communication is becoming a bit of a hot topic right now. Yeah, I think it's really interesting and I, and I do really like it. And um, I, I, um, I suppose that's where the, the Twitter, the Twitter comes in, how we, we connected. Um, I, you know that's that I suppose that's part of it and it's something I feel like I want to learn more about I, I'm um yeah it's definitely it's definitely something that interests me there's been a new I'm trying to think what it is it's sort of like a a roundup thing that where where there's a, a really good little website thing you can can subscribe to and I think once a week they give a roundup of different tips and stuff like that so I, that's that's something that I've just joined lately yeah I mean I that's something that I'm really really interested in is and obviously you do a bit of that <laughs> yeah I mean I, that, that kind of it, it, I started doing it without knowing that that's what it was called you know what I mean it's one of those things where now I'm known as a science communicator but I never gave myself that title you know it's just a, I, I fit into a category I guess yeah so do you have a science background as well I don't at all. In fact, I dropped out of university seven times. So on paper, on paper, I have a high school education. But I mean, I worked, God, I've had so many different jobs. Um, I've all I've worked in technology for over 20 years, mm. uh, recently got laid off uh, from a software management position. But I mean, it's one of those things where science communication, uh, writing, um, you know, doing anything online these days doesn't require even a grad school education or, or a degree. No, I mean it's the it's the communication bit, isn't it? And the the like the the passion and the the asking questions and all of that, which um, you know, which which will sort of help you move forward. Yeah, absolutely. It really comes down to that. It comes down. I mean, I think passion has to drive it because otherwise you're just you're just you know kind of drudging along and and not enjoying it and it's very overwhelming there's just a mm. lot uh you know like twitch for example i don't know if you're familiar with twitch but it's an online gaming platform which is where i decided to show people my tardigrades oh so, okay no i don't know yeah. that but i'll have to take a look you should check it out i'm yeah. trying to get more scientists on there okay. but it's definitely you know, the reason I brought it up is because you have a journalism background and now you're you're doing a PhD. I'm just wondering if you ever thought about combining the two. Mm. Yeah, definitely. But I, I'm not. Yeah, I just sort of I suppose I just take it at all a bit sort of. Um, well, this year it's been sometimes it's been day by day. It's been such a, a strange year. It's definitely something that I I will always want to do ha as part of the, the mix of things that I, you know, do. 
so well, yeah we'll see we'll see what's what's available when i when i finish okay uh you do write a blog which is uh which is i'll just get the url here it's uh well it's i have alisonhaines.wordpress.com yes i call uh, it wildlife here okay <laughs> yeah um i haven't it's not something i do regularly and i and i and i wish i i could but i it's such a take I, I was surprised sort of quite how much time it takes to do a blog piece but i'm i'm um i've got a few pieces up there now yeah because you recently went to antarctica i did i was extremely yeah. lucky and um went to antarctica at the beginning of this year and what what did you do there so i um i went with uh people from brazil some scientists from brazil and I was the, the sort of the representative from my lab here in Australia, from the Sharon Robinson lab. And um, they wanted someone to collaborate from, from our lab because they didn't have any uh, physio like any physiology um, experts. And I was looking, I was helping them look at moss um, where glacier glaciers are retreating on King George Island. So I yeah, I went with them. I was six. I was away for six weeks, and I camped on King George Island for a month. So King George Island, that's uh, is that like on the north side of Antarctica? So it's. I, uh, I think it's called the. You think of it as the west. So it's the bit that, if you can imagine, um, South America and Chile at the bottom, and then mm -hmm. Antarctica. If you look at it with with Chile um, on your sort of left there's a big hook antarctica is like a, a round circle and has like a bit of a fish hook on the west and king george island is off that hook and you went at it during the the winter is there are there seasons there yes there's very I definitely seasons yeah okay. and um yeah you actually go so you go there in the summer but s summer means um so i'm trying to think what what temperature it got to I mean, it wasn't hugely extreme and it would be more extreme, I'd say, probably in parts of Canada. But in the summer in, Ant in Antarctica, where I was, I th it got to about minus eight. And then some days would be like, I think probably about four, something like that. Uh, and wow, that's actually pretty good. Yeah, it, was, so it wasn't It was bad. Um, so for people that that like their warm days, obviously, you know, it's... It's you're not going to sunbathe or anything, but um, it's it's doable. Just to clarify, was that four degrees Celsius? Yes. Okay, so yeah, that's yeah. that's exactly what it was today here in Ottawa, actually. Well, so. there you are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not too bad. But what what is it like to go to a place that most people don't go to? It was um, yeah, like it, it was very very special. I mean, one of the things is it takes. A, a lot of effort and support, um, like um, sort of technical support, logistical support to actually get there. So we flew on a Hercules plane from Punta Arenas in Chile. And then we landed at uh, a, an airport called Frey on King George Island. And then from there, we went on to a Navy ship, the Brazilian Navy. And they, like the next day, took us um, by little Zodiac boats back and forth with all our gear onto this island. And um, yeah, it was very, I wasn't sure what I was going to feel like because I thought, oh, you know, it's going to be this big landscape and will I be able to relate to it? But in fact, where I, 
where we were was like a little cove, quite a sort of a rocky cove. Um, it was very, very beautiful. I mean, very, quite harsh at times, but yeah, very, very special. Some of your, your blog posts are titled Yoga in Antarctica. Is that just a just a, a title for fun or did you actually do yoga there? I did do yoga. And the reason it's called I got yoga in Antarctica is um, I had the idea before I went, like, how do you look after yourself in an extreme environment like that? And I sort of thought, yeah, you're like, you're looking after yourself and you're also interested in what it's like. Oh, you know, do you get a bit of an insight into the planet as well because that obviously Antarctica is a place where climate change is the effects of it are quite extreme so the yoga in Antarctica comes from the idea that I have a what I call my well-being routine here and it includes yoga most days and I thought well yeah how do you do that in Antarctica so yeah I, I'm I'm there will be a there will be a, a piece which is more about the the yoga and it yeah it was difficult but I one of the things I did was I just had to sort of drop the idea that you you know you roll out your mat and do your 20 minutes so I had mm -hmm. um sleep inside sleeping bag yoga on sleeping bag yoga um grabbed grabbed yoga which is sort of <laughs> you're out out in the field and and think oh actually no one's looking and I, I've got a moment here and I'll just do a, a warrior pose or something so I was I was very interested in how you how you sort of maintain well-being in such an extreme place that would have been a fun youtube channel to have just you know while you were in, in antarctica to do yoga and you know teach you do a few yoga lessons through youtube i think that would have been a real hit oh yeah well i'll have to do that next time good idea yeah <laughs> is there is there going to be a next time is that already in the works no like i don't know um who knows? I just, I just don't know. This was, this was um, very unexpected because, um, so we've talked about my, my research is urban, but this was Antarctica. Um, so this, this sort of came up out of the blue and I, and when it was, it, it first was proposed and then, and then um, it fell through and then it sort of popped up again. So like, I really, I barely believed I was going to go until just a, a couple of weeks before it actually got my ticket and stuff. So yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure, but we'll see. I, I, I would go again. Okay, so take me through the next, uh, let's say, two to five years. Uh, when do you think you'll be done your PhD, and what comes after? So I hope to finish my PhD sometime next year. I had uh, I had hoped it would be the end of this year, but it's been a you know really disruptive year for everybody, and including me. So hoping next year. So I've just got the one survey to do now, which I'm two-thirds of the way through so by Christmas I'll have done all my all my experiments and then I'll start the writing writing up uh, I've done some of the writing already so and then after that um, it really will depend on what's available I'd, I'd love to do a, a postdoc I, I like working sort of multidisciplinary and multidisciplinary teams um, I've enjoyed sort of advising some designers about moss in the urban environment or who knows? Maybe I'll do something totally different. I, but I, you know, I, I'm, I have built up a bit of a, I wouldn't say expertise, but some, you know, some knowledge about moss and urban environments. So it would be lovely if I can help apply that to, to, to another situation. Even maybe there's quite a bit of um, talk of mental health and green cities, and you know, maybe there's a role for moss in small places and something like that. Oh, that's very, very interesting. I have seen, now that I think about it, I have seen uh, moss walls, like living walls, I think they're called. Yeah. Um, 
so those yes they had often they are plants and i mean like uh, higher plants um and moss will grow on that as well usually those walls have got a lot of water happening on them so they usually but they sometimes use like gray water from the, the building but it would so one of the things i'm talking about with the designer is how we how you could sort of make use of of just water and the micro the, more that microtopography kind of aspect and maybe so that you wouldn't need to sort of pump water at them to keep them alive okay yeah I was curious because I saw that in my dentist office in Montreal they had like some sort of like moss wall and it looked like it was alive so um yeah I guess that would be a great way to because I I found that really soothing you know and especially mm. in a dentist's office to have a that's, moss wall was really nice that's really cool I, th- I might have to find out about that dentist <laughs> yeah uh one last question for you if you could research moss in three di- very different urban cities across the world, what would those three cities be? Mm. Well, I'd like to go to Japan. So maybe a, um, I don't know the cities well enough in Japan to pick one, but I'd, let's say Tokyo. Um, it would be cool to go back to Paris again. Um, they've got quite a good um, sort of urban biodiversity, like, um, research happening there so that would be really cool where else would I go um mm. it would be really neat to go to somewhere in Africa because there's I've barely seen anything about moss in urban places in Africa so that would be very cool yeah I'm not sure where though yeah, Maybe, yeah. any Maybe ideas like Johannesburg yeah that would be cool yeah cool awesome <laughs> listen this has been so much fun. I, you know, when when we first talked and I was like, okay, ur- urban moss. So how do I, you know, how do I frame this interview? And I was like, I'm just going to ask about it because moss by on its own is already something that's super fascinating. It's super whimsical. It's in all the kind of Japanese films, right? You see the moss and, and it's, uh, it's very curious to learn more about, uh, you know, moss especially in in the the urban context but as you just brought up you know with mental health biodesign all the opportunities that uh that could come out of that so i wish you all the best with your research thanks i just want to say thanks it's been really great to talk to you and i'm 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 convinced you're now going to be like checking out moss even more and i'm going to be checking out those tardigrades (laughs) yes please do thanks allison Mm -hmm.